This is Berg's Eye View. I'm John David Bennett, Dean of Curricular Innovation at Mercersburg Academy. For the 2020-21 academic year, Mercersburg has chosen Making a Difference as its theme. Each month, we'll have a conversation with an alum who is leading, serving, and making a difference. In this podcast, I talked to Dr. Larry Gluck, class of 1971. Dr. Gluck is the medical director of the Cancer Center at the Greenville Hospital System University Medical Center in Greenville, South Carolina. His work over the last two decades has been on the leading edge of targeted cancer treatment. In our conversation, he recounts his time at Mercersburg, talks about his contributions to advancements in oncology, and he tells us why he's optimistic that his young grandson will live in a time when succumbing to cancer will be a thing of the past. So Dr. Gluck, I'm interviewing you in the Prentice Alumni Center because uh, you happen to be in Mercersburg for a particularly special reason. Why, why are you in town? So I took the opportunity to come up to visit uh, my mother and sister and brother-in-law. Uh, and in a remarkable coincidence uh, that it is precisely 44 years to the day that Diana and I were married uh, in the Academy Chapel. Today? Today, 2 o'clock. Really? Mm-hmm. Are you going to go back and visit the chapel too? I'm sure security will let you in. Hey, actually, we spent, uh, we're staying at the Mercersburg Inn, so uh-huh. our rehearsal dinner was at the Mercersburg Inn on August the 13th, and we had dinner on the veranda there last night. So were you a four-year senior at Mercersburg? Did you read yes. here all four years? All four years. And you graduated in 1971? 71. All right. Uh, can you tell us about your time at Mercersburg? So having grown up in Mercersburg, yeah. right, uh, you know, you have some awareness of the distinction between the town and the academy. Uh, for me growing up, it was, you know, a little bit mystical uh, in a very good way. We were talking about uh, the Bell family. So Charlie mm-hmm. Bell and I were mm-hmm. in elementary school together. And uh, I remember, you know, probably fourth or fifth grade on Saturday afternoons, uh, we might go to an academy football game or something like that. Okay. So, so I had an awareness of the academy, and my parents were very very upwardly mobile thinking how neither of them ever went to college but both of whom were lifelong learners and and clearly their desire was for their children so that would be my sister cindy uh, three years older than i am and myself of having an opportunity that they did not have and that was very much uh, part of their mindset and so I suspect uh, the notion that that their son would go to the academy was on their mind, you know, when I was a little kid. And so it's not like a master plan, mm-hmm. uh, but opportunity did um, did evolve. Then. In what way? Well, um, so the familiarity, and then. Uh, uh, the I believe the admissions dean at the time was Ernie Staley. Uh huh. Okay. Legend. And uh, 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 one of his sons was in my same class, same year. Okay. And so there was a conversation of, well, geez, why don't you want to come to the academy? And, oh. and so I remember, you know, it became a little more formal back in those days when. 
went to Harrisburg to take what was then the SSAT. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. <laughs> uh, I remember doing that, and it scored, and so offered an interview, and uh, ended up coming here. So you're here at a really historic time, Chapel Walkout. Yes. So you're a witness to that. Yes. So the Chapel Walkout. So so. <clears throat> Remember that uh, this was mostly uh, a school in residence. And so day students or townies, uh, the dilemma was you were never fully, you could never be as fully integrated. I mean, so, so a hallway conversation mm-hmm. at 10 o'clock at night was not going to occur. Okay. Uh, and so I think the townies as a group you know, weren't really aware of the of the plan for the chapel walkout, so it kind of took us a bit by surprise. Uh, not that it would have been um, unappreciated, mm-hmm. but uh, <laughs> it uh, came a little bit as a surprise. So, uh, yeah, so actually remembering from the chapel down to Boone Hall and the conversations that evolved there. Um, and at least my sense of, you know, the level of, you know, there was a level within the, the faculty at the time of anger. Uh, some had openness to discuss yeah. it. Uh, you know, it was, it was a tense time. And then Bill Fowl discontinued all compulsory chapel not long after that, right? Right. I don't remember the exact time, of course. Yeah. And, and... As a townie, you know, the, the obligatory Saturday morning chapel was never part of my domain because okay. uh, I was here Monday through Friday. Uh-huh. So so actually saw it through a little bit different lens than my brother and who were uh, okay. living on campus. Uh-huh. You were also here for the first female students. Yes. Were they still day students when you graduated or were they in the, in the dorm yet? They were day students. Okay. So that was different. And then, you know, you know, Again, ninth grade, it was coat and tie, unless you were on mm-hmm. back campus, mm-hmm. white shirt to dinner. Uh, so it was, uh, it changed a lot in the, in the four years. But if you look at the, you know, what was going on around us from Woodstock to, uh, right. you know, it was, uh, rev- you know, revolutionary fervor was, uh, was a part of us. Who are some of the teachers you remember? In ninth grade, Bill Allen, uh, biology teacher, uh-huh. uh, followed by Steve Weichel, also a biology teacher, uh, were were early kind of supporters. It was really um, Jay Quinn. Hmm. So I took chemistry in tenth grade, and I remember him being very direct when he said, "You." need to go to medical school really wasn't necessarily part of a differentiated thought that I had at the time uh, I knew I liked science mm-hmm. um, and wow he stopped that early but 10th grade uh, you need to go <laughs> to medical school you're 15 years old then. and he was <laughs> and he was I mean it was it was almost like a directive and oh, wow. And I don't know, did, uh, did you know Jay? I knew Jay. Yes, yeah. okay. Um, and then uh, Eric Harris. 
Okay. Eric Harris, um, that was that was uh, AP chemistry. Uh, British, I guess he also had a degree in divinity. Uh, but he was a quiet man who set a high exacting bar. Oh, uh, and and I remember, remember, um, it's a funny story <laughs> in retrospect. So, so, so Eric, uh, Mr. Harris, uh, on the first day of AP chemistry, of which it's a small group, he announces that all of his students would get would score an 800 on the chemistry achievement test. And after a pause, went on to name the single individual in his multi-decade career at this who did not. And so the message was, as, as we looked at each other, of, oh my heavens. <laughs> and then he said, I recommend that you take it in the fall for in case you fail to get an 800, you can take it again in the spring. So I remember getting my score, and it was like 796. And he, and I, when I told him that, he goes, oh, so close, you'll do better in the spring. <laughs> so you missed one question. Whatever it is, yeah. I'm not sure it's scored on the curve or whatever, but by golly, <laughs> yeah. I took it in the spring. And so, because I mean, and and because there was no way uh, to not live up to that to that challenge. And you crossed this finish line. You I crossed the finish. All line. right. And uh, uh, so that uh, my name would not decorate the halls of infamy <laughs> in Eric Harris's uh, yes. career. But he um, only two students in my career. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, so anyhow, uh, I have I have fond memories of him. Coming to Mercersburg in the ninth grade was, even if you were doing well in, in the public school system, there was a little bit of a, of a mismatch of the educational opportunity that, that many came with. Uh, I was a little behind. And uh, so it was, it was a, some time to, to catch up, but you know, eventually one hits one stride. Apparently, because by 10th grade, Jake Lynn was telling you to go to medical school. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, in order for Jake Quinn to give you that directive when you were in 10th grade, I imagine he saw beyond the scores you had on your tests and quizzes. And that you and that you had some insights. So let's talk about your path to uh, your current medical career. Okay. So you, when you left Mercersburg, you went to the University of Pittsburgh. Correct. Yeah. Willie went to University of Pittsburgh. Two out in the bottom of the ninth because uh, I was more strongly <laughs> considering was going to go to the University of Pennsylvania, and then just for family reasons, it became seemed a little more judicious maybe to go to 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 Pittsburgh. The, f the first two years were disappointing. Uh, so the first thing, I mean, the, the major challenge was I had enough advanced place credits to, to you know, I started uh, organic chemistry as a freshman in college. So, okay. so when you went there, you had to have the AP, and then you had to take their tests. Uh -huh. and, uh, and so I was able to 
move two years down the road uh, to organic chemistry, whether that was a good move or bad move, it was because it certainly puts you in a in a highly competitive atmosphere, particularly for medical school. Uh, but I remember particularly in the humanities and writing and whatever, and it was um, substantially less challenging than than what the classroom setting was here. Okay. Uh, then, and I actually considered, you know, I think I'm, may need to get out of here. Oh, uh, but in then, uh, by the end of my uh, sophomore year in college, the biochemistry department there. So, you know, this was an, un, you know, it was a university uh, then of, it was 35,000 students mm -hmm. and, and medical school complex law, but, you know, every, every, every uh, advanced degree was, was right there. The biochemistry department decided to open for the first time uh, an undergraduate curriculum. And so it had been purely graduate uh, in its nature. And I had the opportunity to be one of the first of, I don't know, must have been eight of us. Uh, and we were brought into an atmosphere of graduate education. And from that point on, the, um, so the educational opportunities then were just phenomenal, just world class. Uh, and then um, I ended up staying there for medical school, then uh, got married in medical school, and because my wife was doing her graduate work in psychology there, ended up staying there for internship and residency at what's now UPMC. And so, so you left there, you went to Duke? So then uh, fellowship, so after, yeah. after internal medicine training, fellowship, uh, in uh, hematology and oncology at Duke, mm -hmm. then then did a year of the faculty there. Okay, and it was really uh, uh, when my second daughter was born that two things happened. Number one, it was another responsibility, mm -hmm. and having joined the faculty, one got a firsthand look at exactly how little money you could make. Uh, on the bottom rung of Duke University, where honor and privilege uh, uh -huh. were, were the were the paycheck, uh -huh. and, uh -huh. and uh, and I and I absolutely loved my Duke days, the laboratory time, uh, the integration of lab and clinical time, uh, but decided that um, need to get out of Dodge to raise a, to raise a family. So let's skip ahead to where you are now. Yeah. Uh, I am the medical director of the Cancer Institute mm -hmm. uh, of, of the largest healthcare system in South Carolina. It started as the Greenville Health System. It's now merged and has a novelly coined name, Prisma Health. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so it is, you know, my day-to-day -day operation is I see far fewer patients and actually am their personal physician for blood and cancer, uh, but more consumed over the programs and running um, the Cancer Institute. Mm -hmm. And it in turn is part of, it's what's called an encore of the National Cancer Institute, so very research-centric in its nature. So the reason I wanted to skip ahead, and if I don't say this correctly, term-wise, let me know. but. Right now, you're primarily focused on oncology. 
Did your early study of hematology have an influence on the long work that you're doing now, the research, the discovery, the, the point of view that you're able to take into the research that you've done? Absolutely. So the, so the, my interest in hematology, so again, if you go back, the, the ability to treat solid tumor part of, of oncology unless it was localized and amenable to surgery and radiation was, was almost pre-medieval uh, compared mm -hmm. to today's standards. And the place where, where you might actually treat uh, and even potentially cure somebody of a particularly striking malady uh, was more in the, in the hematologic setting. Mm -hmm. You could do more good, if you will. Okay. The other draw of the hematology part uh, and, and, the, and the part that I love about medicine to this day is the starting with a scenario and then figuring it out and figuring it out with your, with your cognitive skills mm -hmm. more than your high tech skills. Uh, it, it became what I tell my students, you know, it's, it's the Sherlock Holmes approach. Look at, see somebody in the emergency room, feel a lymph node, look at their blood under the microscope and make the diagnosis, okay? So early on in hematology, that was the driver, but clearly the tools of hematology, that of cytotoxic chemotherapy, uh, then became applicable to the evolving field of oncology and then come all the way forward Really, to me, we now practice molecular biology. So, and so there are, you know, most, most of my time now and on the research side and in the creation of our translational oncology unit, uh, you know, diseases, our approaches have become a bit agnostic to the site of origin. And it is what are the molecular underpinnings at that time that are driving the cancer and what is our therapeutic intervention. So whether, whether this is a patient that started with lung cancer, kidney cancer, or breast cancer, uh, if they've broken through the frontline therapies, we now, and, and really started this path back in 03-04 when it okay when it was an early path to say, you know, let's look at this differently. And so that's, that, has, that has been one of the evolving forces and remains very much one uh, that we employ today. When I was first reading about your work, I was intrigued about the opportunity for this conversation because in my role as the Dean of Curricular Innovation, I see the trend in education rolling toward the sort of precise customization for each student. And I see that in your work. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you, and you just said that this began 2003, 2004. Well, that timing is actually pretty close to when you, we began to see this transition in education, primarily because of the advent of the fMRI machine. Uh, mm -hmm. so, so I imagine that the data that you're now able to, to harvest, the technology that's available to you, um, Yes, can we talk about that sort of parallel similarity? Sure. So, um, so personalization, and another way is to say, how does one optimize 
that what it is that you are doing is going to achieve the desired outcome. Okay. Oh, mm-hmm. uh, and so one could easily imagine I could spend my time saying I need to personalize this. I need to profile mm-hmm. the tumor and its molecular uh, uh, constitution to know how to best treat that patient. That one could equally say there are many learning styles mm-hmm. and that if one mm-hmm. could could learn up front a profile, if you would, in a, in a positive sense, uh, of how can I optimally reach these students that I'm trying to, to have an educational experience with, that if I knew ahead of time that someone was dramatically auditory versus someone who's dramatically visual versus someone who is blended versus someone, uh, if they mechanically keyboard, keyboard or write it, uh, if, they, if their executive function is lagging or you know, an ADHD right. student or someone with dyslexia, yeah. Right. And so, uh, actually, it's, it, it, is, it, it is funny because one of my, uh, one of my uh, other oncologists and I have had this conversation of how you learn differently and you retain things differently. Oh, and uh, bear in mind that when I was in Jay Quinn's chemistry class, uh, a slide roll was the instrument for calculation. Mm-hmm. Slide roll. Mm-hmm. Uh, and most of the world like, you know, is that like the Chinese abbot? Or, you know, what, or whatever. Uh, <laughs> uh, really, you know, uh, a, a calculator uh, was just coming, coming to the forefront. But, but fast forward, uh, I think about learning and and my colleague also was a biochemistry major and and we share something similarly and pondered it of how he and I can remember the Leninger textbook of biochemistry that we had in college and how for me I can remember where certain parts I remember the Nernst equation at the bottom of the left hand side of the book when you open it open mm-hmm, that one mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And to this day but the thing that, that is just frustrating is I find that I may Google something and have the realization that I dang on well have Googled that before and before that. Yes. Okay. And so what is it about long-term neuronal integration mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that, that you have to get from, okay, I, I see it, okay, got it, I got it for the next, you know, hour. Uh-huh. What is it about the process of education that, that is mediated by your senses and have to, whether you like it or not, end up in you know, RNA and molecular modulation in our neuronal circuit that we consider memory, uh-huh. cognition, and all of those other things. And so different people learn in different ways. Um, people remember in different ways. Right. This is such an exciting time in education because we're actually beginning to understand how those mechanisms work. I mean, we can't we can't describe it or represent it with the thoughts of God. I mean, you know, we're not that close to it, but we have a pretty clear sense. I mean, with uh, the research that supports things like retrieval practice or spacing practice, where 
it's good to let something start to fade and then have to retrieve it, which sends it deeper. But that's something that uh, we couldn't have known until until recently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so uh, I can easily see parallels between translational, molecular-based hematology and oncology. And, and back to your original question, to me, hematology and oncology have totally merged. Okay. That that this is uh, the molecular biology of neoplasia. Is that everywhere, or is that just on the cutting edge that they've merged? So, I mean, I think back 15 years ago, mm-hmm. it was it was uh, an early an early effort. Uh, I think today it, it is largely merged, and but not necessarily to the point where. You know, the critics of it are, well, yeah, I mean, you've gotten a few a few singles, doubles, stand-up triples, and a few home runs, mm-hmm. chronic granulocytic leukemia being a, a home run. Uh, but there are still a tremendous number of cancers, many of which are common, uh, that you haven't even gotten a bunch single. Cancer of the pancreas <laughs> and glioblastoma of the brain, uh-huh. I show up weaponized about as well as I did in 1986. Uh-huh. Absolutely humbling. You know, and to me, it's not, we're not going to get there. It's just we need to think in different ways, and we'll eventually get there, or our successors will get there. Um, and, um, you know, it's like cancer is is not a single disease and lung cancer is not a single disease and in fact at the ultimate end you say actually everybody with with a cancer is different the molecular footprints are going to be different even if people have exactly the same appearance under the microscope but i heard you say that you feel like for your grandson that you'll one day be able to tell him could you articulate that? Yes, sure and, so, and, so, and so as a cancer doctor, and particularly if, you're, if you are building programs and trying to promote them and gain support, you, you, you have to be ready to field uh, those who have reluctance of the direction that you seek to go mm-hmm. uh, and the criticism that can go with it. Mm-hmm. And then just the, the, the ever-present questions one of which is, well, when are you finding a cure of cancer? Uh, and the, the comment that I've made is that over, and I, and I don't know when it is, but I am out on the limb to say, and I made this when my grandson was, was uh, seven, that my seven, now turned nine last mm-hmm. week, grandson, would say to his children at some time in his lifetime, a, an admonition and a reminder, listen, people used to die of cancer. Hmm. Now, that's not to say that 100% cancer would be eradicated, uh, just like we can talk about you know, certain pandemics that we have under control an ironic time to be making that analogy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that, you know, indeed, as far as viral pandemics, our, our society that populates the face of the earth today uh, had largely felt that, yeah, no matter what it is, if it's an infectious disease, we'll have an antibiotic, a vaccine, or whatever. And so this is humbling, if you will. 
but someday, cancer will take remarkably fewer lives uh, to the point where it is no longer in your face as cancer and progressively less so heart disease are today. That was Dr. Larry Gluck, class of 1971. Thank you for listening. Special thanks to Jason Brashatsky and Megan Mallory for their help with producing this podcast. And thank you to Brian Morgan, class of 2007, and Maddie Norris, class of 2021, for writing and recording the theme music. If you have a classmate who is making a difference and you'd like to nominate them for an appearance on Berg's Eye View, send a message to alumni at mercersburg.edu. Thank you.